We are getting closer and closer to Remembrance Day, November 11th, coming up on Friday. And uh, we'll have some conversations uh, leading up to it about um, Canada's war history. And uh, I'm really looking forward to our next conversation. Tim Cook is the chief historian and director of research at the Canadian War Museum. I mean, he's written a number of uh, best-selling and award-winning books, including um, At the Sharp End and Vimy, The Battle in the Legend. His new book is called Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, Medical Care and the Struggle for Survival in the Great War. Uh, and it details the experience of the hundreds, thousands of Canadians who served in the Canadian medical units during World War One. So I am thrilled that Tim Cook is joining us this morning. Tim, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you being here. Uh, great to be on your show. Um, let's just start with an idea of, you know, the medical units that did serve our soldiers in World War One. It was a massive contingent, right? Thousands of people. Yeah, about uh, half of all Canadian doctors in Canada and about a third of all nurses served overseas in the war. And, of course, this was a titanic struggle where 620,000 Canadians served, and that's from a country of 8 million so today's equivalent would be about 3.5 million or so. It's the war of the trenches. I think many of us can remember and imagine the un, uh, shocking slaughter of high-explosive shells and shrapnel and machine guns firing 500 bullets a minute, chemical weapons, and, of course, um, human flesh. Uh, our soldiers, our boys, going over the top, attacking the enemy, suffering horrendous casualties. And it was the doctors and the nurses who kept them... Um, you know, supported uh, with the medical services, uh, repairing their broken bodies and their shattered minds, and uh, absolutely crucial to the fighting experience. You know, and I think you make a good point. We all envision the medical units as something like that, like MASH, right? You know, doing surgery on these horrific wounds and all the rest, and we'll get into that. That definitely did happen. That's part of it. But there was much more to it, right? I mean, for example, disease. That was a really, really big deal. Yeah, disease had been the great reaper of armies up to that point in human history. Almost every war had seen disease kill more than bullet and shell, even the American Civil War with 2,000 land battles, more soldiers died by disease. And so that was the great fear. And of course, the Great War, at least on the Western Front, was a great war of stalemated trenches. These armies should have dissolved into a diseased mob, but they didn't. And they didn't because of the medical services, those medical officers who demanded vaccinations, who kept um, an eye on potential diseases, um, the unglamorous work of where uh, human waste goes and latrines. Uh, watching out for diseases that would uh, waste away a soldier's body. Um, the, the medical services, they had an unglamorous role there. It's not as important or, or perhaps recognized as the surgical advances, but it was absolutely crucial in keeping the Canadian soldiers fit. And it's, it's really what our medical services continue to do to this day in, in what's called force per protection, to make sure that our men and women uh, do, do not um, suffer the ravages of disease. Now, when we talk about, you know, combat injuries and the traumatic injuries, I mean, medical, event, I mean, it was interesting, you sort of lay out how at the beginning of the war, what treatment was like and what options were available and how so much was learned so quickly and so many advances were made throughout the course of the conflict and how much it improved. 
It did. I mean, this is this is the age before penicillin or antibiotics, and so almost every wound was infected. And this was um, this was shocking to many of these doctors who had come from Canada would not have seen these types of wounds, let alone shrapnel and high explosives, dismembering bodies, shattered uh, skulls, uh, soldiers with gaping gut wounds, uh, a femur, broken femur was almost a death sentence in 1915. And so these doctors had to learn um, on their patients. And uh, there is an evolution in care and treatment. By the end of the war, those wounds from 1915 and 16, which were absolutely lethal, they were routinely saving soldiers. And my books, as you know, and we've talked about this before, I, I rely on the letters and the diaries and the memoirs of the eyewitnesses to history. They're all gone now from the Great War. But those powerful and poignant accounts, um, that's the stuff of history for me. And so I, my books always try to lay that out. This book, there is some hard reading here mm -hmm. uh, of bodies that are torn apart and minds that are uh, traumatized and scarred. And yet, this is the stuff we need to talk about. You mentioned the minds that are traumatized and scarred, and that was part of the work the medical units did too, right? It wasn't just the physical health of the soldiers. They were concerned about mental health too, as much as they could be at the time. They were. Tremendous advances here. Of course, some of your listeners will recognize the term shell shock. Yep. This was the, the mental suffering of soldiers, sometimes a traumatic event, often because they were being worn down by the unending stress. And the doctors had to confront that and, and to deal with the patients. Sometimes it was gentle treatment, baths, rest, a Freudian talk. Sometimes it was brutal, electric shock therapy. And some of those contradictions are captured in the book. Uh, the title of lifesavers and body snatchers. Well, the lifesavers, I think we understand that. The body snatchers is, is a darker story in there about the, the learning process of these medical officers, which included, and I was quite shocked to find, both the autopsying of slain soldiers, but the removal yeah. and harvesting of their body parts. Yeah, tell us, how did you discover that? And, and, and what did you discover? What was going on? Well, it's a shocking story. I mean, I've been a military historian for 25 years. This is my 14th book, and I, I, I never knew this story. It's never been written about. But in short, in order for the medical officers to better treat the wounded soldiers, they studied the bodies of slain soldiers, and they made advances there. But it went beyond that, and the official records at the National Archives, when I found them, I spent many years looking, revealed that they were harvesting body parts, brains with bullet holes, uh, lungs that had burned out from mustard gas, uh, bone fragments, and they took these harvested body parts, sent them to a museum in London, and then, even more surprisingly, sent them back to Canada at the end of the war. About 799 body parts were sent back for a museum that was supposed to have been built in Ottawa. It never was. But the shocking part here for me is that the family members were never told about this. And now, we have to understand it in the context of the time. There's no such thing as consent at the time. And yet, this was still very shocking to me because after the war, of course, we ennobled the fallen. We talk about yeah. their sacrifice. We built thousands of memorials. We're coming up to Remembrance Day. Um, that's the period of Armistice Day, Remembrance Day, as it will be renamed in 1931. The poppy. Um, everywhere your listeners are 
are today, there is a memorial to the First World War, I will bet. And so how can we have these two contradictions? Um, and I struggle with that in the book. On the one hand, it makes sense of the, the idea of learning from the dead. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, though, these were fathers and sons and brothers who served king and country. And I, I think it's... Um, it's a major revelation that the book um, reveals. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. And I, another struggle that you talk about in the book, and I, I never thought of it before reading this, was um, the one that doctors had and what they wrestled with were fixing up soldiers, were saving lives with the express purpose of endangering more lives by returning them to the fight. And ultimately, they may get killed in the end anyway. I, that must be a huge ethical struggle. It was, and, and some of the doctors talked about that, that, you know, they just, they didn't know how to feel about, yes, we're caring for these young men, we're trying to alleviate their pain and suffering, but for the ultimate goal of sending them back into the firing line, because we needed every soldier there in this um, in this unlimited war effort. That kind of um, struggle was evident in the letters and the diaries, and it's also revealed in things like triage, when hospital units are having thousands of patients a wounded soldiers crash over them. They can't care for everyone. They had to decide sometimes who would live and who would be left to die. So some of these ethical dilemmas are, are evident as well. Now, uh, it's a struggle that they had, but most of them understood, mm-hmm. uh, judging from the, their letters and diaries, they understood that the war had to be won. They understood that their role was to support the fighting forces, and they understood that um, they could do more good um, by assisting the soldiers. And so that's why I think we get about half of all Canadian doctors serving in the war. It's just amazing. Last one, and then I'll let you go. I mean, as brutal and awful as it must have been in some of those issues that we've just talked about, in the end, we we honor the sacrifice. We should honor the advancements and the amazing work that our medical units did, too, because humanity is better for it. That learning that you talk about, that's benefited medicine in so many immeasurable ways. Yeah, indeed it has. And and with half of Canadian doctors serving overseas, most surviving, they come back to Canada. They bring all of these lessons in surgical care and treatment, in blood transfusion, which is pioneered on the battlefields, in the use of the x-ray, which on the battlefields was used to look for metal hidden in, in soldiers' bodies. But after the war, assisted um, victims of tuberculosis. Um, the list goes on. Facial reconstruction. One of the key ones is a, a new movement for public health. We lost 66,000 Canadians killed in the war. Well, after the war, they're talking about the need for better maternal care and for young babies because we need this new generation to help replace the losses. There are other legacies and yet, as I argue in the book, never has there been a period of such incredible growth and evolution in medical care than in those four years. It's an, it really is a remarkable story, and one that, you know what, we, we don't hear that much about. We don't talk about the medical units that much, so uh, uh, fantastic work, and I really appreciate you joining us today, Tim. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.